A Different Kind of Leader captures insights from diverse leaders in healthcare, public health, and academic settings so that our organizations are in a stronger position to grow, innovate, and meet the challenges of our day. To our listeners, thanks so much for joining us. I'm thrilled to be joined today by Dr. Marcella Nunez-Smith, who is Associate Dean for Health Equity Research at Yale and also the CNH Long Professor of Medicine, Public Health and Management, and founding director of the Equity Research and Innovation Center in the Office of Health Equity Research at Yale School of Medicine. Dr. Nunez-Smith currently serves as senior advisor to the White House COVID-19 response team and chair of the Presidential COVID-19 Health Equity Task Force at the Department of Health and Human Services. She previously served as co-chair for the Biden-Harris Transition COVID-19 Advisory Board, as well as community committee chair for the Reopen Connecticut Advisory Group on behalf of Connecticut Governor Lamont. I'm so excited that Marcel is here to join us today. So, Marcella, we are so thrilled to have you on. This is a particularly special time for me to be able to spend these precious moments with you. So, we're going to get started with what we ask every guest that's on our show, which is a quote that embodies your leadership style or your approach to your career. Oh, goodness. Well, let me just start by saying what an honor it is to be here. You know, Giselle. You and your career and your way of being and your way of showing up and your leadership style has really just inspired and informed me. I I am nowhere near close to the embodiment that is you, but I just don't even have the words to say how grateful I am for you and for all that you do and for your grace and your generosity and for you always answering the phone and the text and the call and, and being there with that advice and encouragement and support. So I just have to start with that. And, you know, if I could have looked up all your quotes, it would probably be something you've said, to be quite to be quite frank. What comes to mind when you ask that? And I so appreciate the gift of moments like this to reflect. And I would say I even go all the way back to like my little wee self and childhood. And, and uh, my maternal grandma is someone who played such an important role in my life. And I grew up uh, in St. Thomas in the U.S. Virgin Islands. And so much of everything about my life then really does guide me now. And she was a woman of, of extraordinary wisdom. And just, th- I see my like literally three-year-old self. And she said to me, I want you to remember as you move forward in your life, no one is better than you are. No one. And then she said, and also you're not better than anyone else. And she would return to this sort of this regular cadence, right? Of this guiding principle. And that's how I try to show up. Like I belong in this space. I will bring contribution and value, but no more so than the next person who is here. And it's not a quote you're going to find in a book, but really it's her voice I hear all the time in everything that I do, right? No one is better. And you're also not better than anyone else. And I just love that. And also everything that Giselle has ever said. You know, it's interesting how you go through life and different layers of the onion sort of reveal itself about why you do the things you do. For me, my father gave me a quote that I held with me my whole life. And those simple sayings that you can come back to and can ground yourself, can inspire you, whatever it is, the reason that that saying quote or a way of thinking 
words matter, right? And it's beautiful to me that you're able to keep your grandmother with you in that way. It's quite beautiful. So I have had the incredible pleasure of knowing you from the very early beginnings of your career. I still remember us sitting in my office interviewing you for your your fellowship and also reading, you know, really kind of the groundbreaking research that you did. But not everyone may know that story, may know that Marcella. So can you share with me how you got started in your career? Tell me about this leadership journey. Let folks have a little window into who you are. You have such an incredibly warm presence when you're in the spaces that you're in, and it's always so gratifying for me to, to have that window, but maybe share a little bit about your journey. Oh, goodness. Thank you. What is that origin story? You know, it's so, <laughs> <laughs> so funny. I'm a very proud general internal medicine doc. I'm a very proud physician researcher. Um, and yet, you know, there is a talk I give titled The Accidental Academic, because I certainly, you know, I, I'm the most surprised. As you, as you mentioned, I, you know, I ended up training in uh, what was then funded by Robert Wood Johnson Foundation Clinical Scholars Program. Really great experience, transformative. You know, the, the community is, is so precious to me still. But, you know, I go back and I read the application <laughs> that I submitted. Oh, my goodness. I really encourage everybody to kind of hold these things from your different <laughs> phases of your career. The last paragraph of my application to the Clinical Scholars Program says, although I am 100% sure I will not pursue a career in academics, comma, right? <laughs> and so, so I do. I'm like, huh, how did I get here? You know, I would say that when I trained as an internal medicine physician, even going back, right, as a medical student, I think one of the great things about the field and and always a moment, I think, Giselle, when you and I are sharing space to always acknowledge. Right now, there are a lot of people talking about health equity, right? There are a lot of people talking about community engagement. And that's good, right? I think that is that is good. And as long as everybody's showing up with that curiosity, and I think that respect for the wisdom that's come before. And really understanding, you know, this isn't a new field. This isn't a new discipline. There is a strong evidence base, right? Giselle, you've contributed to it in the most prolific ways, right? So many others. So I always want to say that, like, even when I was in medical school, it wasn't health equity research. I think maybe disparities was a term that was involved. But what we understood the phenomenon, whatever we want to call it or name it. And I was really struck going to medical school in Philadelphia you know, in that community, being in a medical school. Can I tell you a story, Giselle? Please. I don't tell it often. And I, and I will start with the disclaimers, right? Which is that my medical school was phenomenal. I had the best training. I felt so clinically prepared, ready for residency and day one. And I learned a lot, right? And, and I continue to be just a huge fan this is more of just an example of, I think, what happens all around the country and not anything unique, right, to where I trained. You know, on the first day of med school, there are two things I remember. One, we learned how to wash our hands, which I didn't know I had been doing wrong my whole life. Right? <laughs> so that was the first thing we learned. Particularly was, helpful in the last couple of years. <laughs> exactly. I was like, look, med school, really important. And so learn how to wash my hands. The other thing it was a large class, right? There were about 200 of us or so. It's really large school. And we were sitting in a very big auditorium. And it was a historic day because my class was the first class where sort of gender um, parity was achieved. So the class oh, wow. was 50% or 51%, maybe even women. 
being admitted. So that was really special and celebrated. And they began by saying, like, could all the women stand up? Right. And it was something to behold in this big room and to see it and to get all the historical context there. Then they went through and sort of found other commonalities to sort of say, please rise, right? Please rise if you were this or whatever, went to undergrad in in this region, whatever it was. They asked for the professional clowns to stand up even, right? Oh my word. Yes. (laughs) All the professional clowns, please, please stand up. Forgive my memory, but maybe eight, right? I mean, there was like a a notable number of people who were trained as professional. Holy moly. Holy moly. (laughs) And then they, they asked students of color to stand up. And what I remember is we numbered fewer than the number of professional clouds in the class. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Oh my goodness. That's what I remember from the first day. Mm. And I, I was sitting up in the front. I'm a short person in stature, right? I'm always kind of at the front of the room. And I remember turning around and looking up in the auditorium and saying like, hello, like cupping my mouth and saying like, hello to these like couple people who were scattered in the room who identified as students of color. So, you know, you were kind to call, you know, one of my scholar projects important or groundbreaking or seminal. That was a deeper inquiry into what does it mean to be a physician of color and beholding issues of of race and how that is really the silence around it, the unspoken realities, the the taxes and expectations and demands and opportunity cost, and was able to use qualitative methods to look at that. But when I stop and say like, well, why? Why was that my scholar project? This question of representation and inclusion and, and really race and what we carry as physicians of color, many of us, you know, there's part of that story that starts there yeah. in a classroom with a few other, just a few others. But I've been grateful just along the way, right? I mean, to have extraordinary experiences and opportunity, training, colleagues, and have grown really. And I continue to be extraordinarily focused on healthcare representation um, and diversity, but I get to do other things now too, which is great. Tell me if you can, maybe you, you may not be able to say, answer this question, given the role that you have now in the Biden administration. Tell me about that moment when you got the call to serve in this way. What was your thinking about that? How did you make that decision? What were the sort of red flags that you were looking at? Was it just running absolutely, yes, this is something I've always wanted to do? Or was this like, wait a minute, what? (laughs) (laughs) Wait a minute, what? (laughs) Or something in between? How how did you come to that moment? How did you think about that decision? Um, And how are you thinking about it now in terms of your career? Wait a minute, what? Let's be wait a minute, what? Let's start there. Um, I mean, I I had this, you know, this fellowship application that said, you know, although I don't want a career in academic medicine or research, comma, it didn't say, right, I am really eager to look at roles in government, right? (laughs) And in fact, it went on to talk a lot about uh, foundations, right? And what the role of foundations and philanthropy in that space. So I would say, no, that this this certainly was not uh, something that I I had on my to-do list. And I've always hoped that, the research that I'm part of could be of utility to people sitting in kind of policy decision-making spaces, but I really never saw myself as being in the policy decision-making space. You know, COVID-19 upends everything. And this is yet another story of that. You know, I'm in Connecticut. Our governor was setting up his reopened Connecticut advisory committee. 
one of the co-chairs, uh, Albert Co, who is also here at Yale, uh, you know, reached out, asked me to chair a community committee. I know you played such an important role, continue to, right, also in North Carolina. But that was a yes. What can I do? How can I be helpful? Chairing that committee. And then started thinking about COVID-19 policy and whatever that, that means, especially vis-a-vis marginalized, minoritized, the highest risk groups and communities. So that was like a, a baby step. And that would have been probably like uh, maybe April of 2020. The call that I got that's connected me to the current administration was in August of 2020. Um, I received a call, well, first from a good colleague here, uh, Dr. Uh, Howard Foreman, who um, is great. And, and I was given a talk, just I was in the middle of a, of a talk and how he usually sends a text. And so he called and I awkwardly said, you know, give me one moment. I'll be right back. And I took Howie's call and he said, the campaign is calling you in one second answer. Now I had literally, I was like, I don't even know what those words mean. So I was like, the campaign is calling you. <laughs> what is he talking about? It's <laughs> like the eagle about? has landed. The eagle, right? I'm like, what's he talking about? So I was like, poor Howie. I, you know, I don't know. He's, he called the wrong person. Like, I don't know what this was. So I apologized to the audience. You know, it was a virtual talk, obviously, but then, and apologized to the audience to resume the talk. Within, you know, 90 seconds, the phone rang again, a number I didn't recognize, a DC number. I apologize again to the very patient audience and took a call. It was Jake Sullivan, who is head of the sort of National Security Council for the White House. And it was then was a, a campaign leader. And I didn't know Jake and didn't know anything of this. And Jake said, the candidate would like to be briefed on COVID-19 disparities. Can you do that tomorrow morning? And this is like, I don't know. This is an afternoon talk that I was doing. <laughs> <laughs> so like in those moments where I, I just was like, yeah, yes, <laughs> right? Yes. And literally after, you know, I went back to my talk and then afterwards was like, who's the candidate? What's the candidate? What's the briefing? <laughs> right? Like sort of just had this moment. And, and let me just say the last, like this extraordinary, you and I have talked about this, like the importance of the teams, right? Like we get to kind of be the face and, take credit, take blame too, right? But kind of be the, the face of what is the work of so many people, right? Working with us. And, you know, the team here at Eric is just, I can't say enough. Because when I said yes to the candidate, I was really saying the team is saying yes, right? Because my next message was to the team that pulled an all-nighter, right? To prep for that, for that briefing. Mm-hmm. And so that was the first. And we, we had several conversations with, with the candidate. Then the, the vice president, you know, joined the ticket with the vice presidential candidate and then was invited to co-chair COVID-19 advisory board and and then invited to have a role in the administration and various roles. But the pace is extraordinary, as you can imagine. So I would say this is one of very few moments to kind of reflect on that. And this is unusual. Thank you for sharing that trajectory. I also want to, in addition to the, the vital importance of having such a qualified and experienced and hardworking team. It also, to me, raises this idea that oftentimes people look at our trajectories and think, oh, they've been lucky. But luck is actually, and I try to strike that from my vocabulary, because it's opportunity meeting preparedness. And that is an exquisite example of opportunity and preparedness and expertise sort of coming together and opening a window to be able to move through that. Thank you for saying that. I really appreciate that, Giselle. So I know that our time is already starting to dwindle. So I'm. No. I know. <laughs> no. You're not so greedy for just any moments with any you. I never want this to you. But I'm going to turn us to the questions that we ask all of our guests. And maybe you can use those to embellish and 
continue to round out your story. What do you do for self-care? Do you literally just talked about that pace? I know that you have a full personal life as well with all the beauty that's embodied in that. And so what do you do for, how do you maintain this pace? What do you do for self-care? I'm really probably the most self-aware of the role modeling right, Giselle? Like there's so many people. And I think a lot of people are sort of like, oh, what does it mean to kind of be in these spaces and in this room for a career? And I think that's great. But I think a lot of people are also watching the decisions I make around self-care and don't make. And I just feel this great obligation to the, the next generation to try to model, right? This is a marathon. Anybody who's in health equity knows this, right? Like it's marathon. So you can't be burning yourself out. We've been training for this marathon for decades. For decades, right? Like (laughs) we're in it now and it's a marathon. Mm -hmm. Um, So we do have to think about this with intentionality. Like I am so very fortunate. I was talking to someone who has come kind of back into my professional orbit after I was her intern and she was my medical student. And it was just wonderful. She's an amazing health equity leader. And she said to me, she was like, you've had so many professional successes and I hope personal successes too. And I was like, oh, thank you for that. And yes, right. I feel so blessed. And, you know, and I do carry these other things, spouse, parent, friend, daughter, right. All of that. And so that reconnection, because that's what it often does feel like, right. Is like that reconnection. And so being so deliberate and so intentional about reconnecting and setting some of the boundaries, I don't travel to DC. Because I like uh, sitting with my children at breakfast and that's the protected time as a family. Like we have the breakfast, it's chaotic, but everybody is checking in and it's really important. And I like to see them, even if I can't be present at dinner or always present at bedtime for the children, especially like I can walk in the room and see them sleep. And like, these are the things that recharge, right? And, And it's so important. The work we're doing is to make the world better for them. So it's like this daily reminder of that. And I am just a cliche person who likes long walks in the woods. <laughs> like, like, so you I and me. Yes. <laughs> so I do that stuff too. You know, I really like to get my aggression out on like the spin bike, you know? So, so doing this, I suspect you may ask me this question where I will falter, which is the thing, you know, the thing that I'm not doing is I miss reading and like, I'm not able to do that. So, so when people sort of say, you know, what are you looking forward to on the other side of this schedule and this piece? It's like reading a book. Well, <laughs> like looking that, forward is, to reading a book. <laughs> that is actually the next couple questions. What's your favorite leadership book or a book that you would recommend? It doesn't have to be one that you've read recently, but something that you, you know, may have read about or heard about in the past. And what are you reading or listening to now? Yeah. So the first one, this is great. And I'm going to look because hopefully you have a list of all the the people you talk with on your own list. So I can, because I have an activity of like building my to read list. I have a stack. I've literally stacks by almost every chair of to read lists. So take pictures (laughs) and send to me, please. Because I can can reproduce those stacks by my chairs, right? So what I might say, a leadership book person. Well, let me say this. From when I was a fellow here at Yale in the clinical scholars program, I had the great opportunity to work with an organizational psychologist who's David. And he has authored many things. This is his area in discipline, is thinking about leadership. And, you know, the things he's written really are tremendous in helping me. You know, he's elevated my thinking and my worldview, understanding the difference between groups and group membership and how groups interact, right? Not just people, 
the individuals who are also holding group representation and what that means. That's why I'm always a continuous student because it's so easy to slide right into individual level, like attribution, you know, either in the positive or the negative and miss an opportunity and then actually not be accurate in how you intervene in an organization, in a team, in a system. So I continue to be a student of David's and all that he's contributed in that leadership space. And so I would lift, lift that up. And I'm getting to work with him now here at Eric on this Alder for Scholars program that, that brings in students and trainees in our ecosystem to learn these ideas really early on and how this connects with race and equity. And, you know, it's a joy to watch the students discover these theories too in leadership. So I would say that. Then this other, which you know is a question I'm avoiding because I just told you, like, I am not reading and listening to a whole lot that's outside of COVID-19 right now. But, you know, in the two books that are in my car, which also <laughs> goes back to like when I was a, a undergrad, I would carry like the Orgo text with me and hope by osmosis. <laughs> into, like wherever I went, I carried the Orgo text. So I carry these books with me everywhere. And it's cast and the sum of us. And so yes. those are the two books that come with me everywhere. I probably could find them here in the office because I just bring them <laughs> everywhere with me should I find five seconds. So, yes. so those are the ones right now. You're close to the leader of the free world. And what do you think separates good leaders from great leaders? Oh my gosh. Yes. I can't even. It's experience of a lifetime to serve President Biden. Because let me say, I wasn't part of the campaign. and. He is kind, right? And he listens and he's really smart. So he's prepared and he knows and he will contribute. But his learning, you can see his preparation is so multi-pronged. Like he has spoken to people in addition to reading the briefs, in addition, right? He is prepared as a leader, but kind and gracious. Even in the way he interacts with his advisors, like he understands you're talking, you know, it can't be the easiest thing the first time you're talking to the leader of the free world, right? Like he right. understands that and he creates a space that is warm and inviting. He asks about the children, right? Like I mean, he, he creates a moment of human connection every time and then brings to the work human connection too. And to see that grounding, whenever we talk about equity being at the center of the COVID-19 response, like it's so not a talking point. And yeah. I just wish I could show that we just, actually at the time of our conversation last night. And he will, the clock doesn't matter, right? He wants that deeper dive and conversation about equity. And it sets a tone for everyone to see how important it is. And of course, the vice president. So to just be in the presence of those two leaders who are both extraordinary. And I know I have a job to do, which I do my best to do every time with them. But I can't help but say, goodness, if I walk away and don't learn something about great leadership, shame on me. Because everywhere, there are just people who are doing this walk in the most extraordinary way. That is, thank you for sharing that. And my last question for you, because our time is now up. What advice would you give to your younger self? Oh, wow. You've got such great questions to say. <laughs> <laughs> You're already everything you need. Beautiful. Full circle back to grandma. Yes, right. Right back to grandma. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Susan. 
Thank you for joining us today, Marcella. This has been a beautiful gift for me today and a bright spot in my day. And I, I really am so excited to share this with our listeners. Thank you. Thanks to our listeners for joining us. And special thanks to Dr. Marcella Nunez-Smith. You can find Dr. Nunez-Smith on Twitter at Dr. Nunez-Smith. On the next episode of A Different Kind of Leader, we'll be hearing from Dr. Deborah Barksdale, professor and the first Black dean at the School of Nursing at UNC Greensboro. This episode was hosted by Giselle Corby and produced by Sable Watson and Rachel Quinto. Our production assistant is Shelby McClam. It contains music by Mix Out and Chill Out Lounge and sound engineered by Sam of Kingdom Media. Visit our website at differentkindofleader.com to find resources for your leadership toolkit and to hear more from other leaders. If you like what you've heard, please rate us and leave a comment wherever you listen to podcasts. It helps others to find us. Like and comment on Facebook and Instagram at Different Kind of Leader, all one word, as well as on Twitter at DK Leadership. As always, we want to hear from you, our listeners. So please contact us at differentkindofleader at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. This is A Different Kind of Leader.